0: Hey, listeners, Tim Winkler here, your host of The Pair Program. We've got exciting news introducing our latest partner series, Beyond the Program. In these special episodes, we're passing the mic to some of our savvy former guests who are returning as guest hosts. Get ready for unfiltered conversations, exclusive insights, and unexpected twists as our alumni pair up with their chosen guest. Each guest host is a trailblazing expert in a unique technical field. Think data, product management, and engineering, all with a keen focus on startups and career growth. Look out for these bonus episodes dropping every other week, bridging the gaps between our traditional pair Program episodes. So buckle up and get ready to venture beyond the program. Enjoy.
1: Welcome to CTO Wisdom. My name is Eric Brook. This series will talk with people who've led technology at organizations. We'll seek to understand some of the journeys of the person, explore what's successful, a current problem they're discovering or digging into, and what are they seeing in the wider tech market? Finally, we'll talk about some recommendations where they collect intelligence for them and their organization. Welcome to Bowden. who we'll be chatting with today. Hey, Bowden. Good afternoon. Could you give us your elevator pitch, please?
2: Sure. Uh, I'm a serial chief technology officer, chief product officer. I have had 35 years of operational experience, about 23 years as a C-level executive across a variety of domains. Everything from telecom, HR tech, fintech, e-commerce, SaaS, um, and it's been quite a journey. So I'm happy to share my experiences.
1: That's awesome. Thank you. So let's get started from the beginning. Like, could you tell us a bit about your journey before you became an executive?
2: Okay. Um, I graduated in the late '80s out of engineering school, specifically of T engineering. Um, and I was lucky enough uh, to enter the workforce almost immediately. We were entering a downturn at the time. Uh, particularly in Canada. So I guess a bit of reflections on the current environment uh, right now in the tech industry generally. Uh, But I was lucky enough to have a great coach and mentor within the Bell Canada group of companies. And I basically had a number of fairly strategic uh, projects that uh, I was put in charge of uh, within the Bell Canada group. The very first project that I did actually had to do with the deployment of uh, payphone terminals, you probably still see them uh, in airports within Canada, the ones that are two fluorescent display. Uh, Specifically, I was in charge of designing, architecting and applying the data authentication network for those card based terminals, which was science fiction at the time in the late 80s. So effectively, um, the protocol that was used specifically was X-25, so this is all pre-internet. So again, I uh, learned a lot about stakeholder management, critical path management, project management. Uh, that was my first project. Um, I was then put in charge of even larger scale projects like the modernization of the signaling network within Bell Canada, specifically Ontario and Quebec, although my, I think, guidelines were used ubiquitously within other telecom networks within Canada. And finally, the deployment of equal access um, with due to deregulation in Canada. Um, I did also during that time, I was lucky enough to do a master's of engineering degree at McGill and do some research at Bell Norvin Research, which is an adjunct company or sister company of Bell Canada, which was the advanced research arm of Nortel Telecom at that one time. It's probably the closest thing to Google before Google, which is kind of cool for me as a young engineering manager slash researcher. From there, um, I was um, approached by the chairman of the board at a regulatory proceeding, uh, ironically enough, because I was one of those odd engineers that could write and talk. Uh, So I got involved in regulatory proceedings at the CRDC uh, and basically approached and said, I could use you, my fledgling telecom company, which was ClearNet. It was microscopic at the time it was by comparative stance uh it was about a hundred people in total uh but i took a leap of faith i really just enjoyed everyone i met at clarinet and there are a lot of people that thought i was a bit crazy to have this guaranteed sure thing with bell canada to jump from a basically a fifty-five thousand person entity to a hundred person entity but um i joined that clarinet and i never looked back so in a a nutshell grew from about 100 people to 2,400 people within five years. Uh, I was given more of a leadership role in engineering and and the deployment of various engineering um, projects, like the the deployment and selection of the signaling network, uh, selection of switching systems infrastructure, um, the selection of the OSS-BSS system. And it was a great ride. Uh, so ClearNet was acquired by TELUS uh, for $6.7 billion, uh in 1999, if I recall correctly. And it was, again, uh, it was a great ride. One of the things that I found um, on, I would say, the frustrating side within the Bell Canada Prize, which is the ability to apply what we would describe as agile, lead methodology, I got to deploy that within ClearNet and I never looked back. And I also enjoyed Frankly, the pace at which things could be done, you know, identify symptom, identify root cause, determine a course of action, then execute. I just really enjoy that. And interesting enough, um, at the tail end of that, I was approached by a co-op who had been hired two years earlier uh, named Lucas Kokoski, who had started a little startup called Reddy, um, about 10 people in size at that point in time. But we spoke and realized that we had a consistent vision on a real-time OSS BSS layer operating support system business support system for telecom networks and i joined on as its effectively first cto uh again people thought it was crazy going from <laughs> a guaranteed career within telus um uh incumbent but i i wanted to take my shot at both telecom and this time um, being in charge of actually software delivery. And that was an exciting ride. That tenure lasted 10 years. Um, and I think I inherited a team size of about five. That grew to about 170 people uh, between Toronto and Pune India. And again, I, I got to exercise additional muscles over regards to hiring, training, coaching, mentoring, organization. I was in charge of both technology and product. Um, And I guess one of the unique aspects about that tenure is we IPO'd in 2007. But one of the, I think, more uh, unknown aspects about Rennie was we basically did that without VC or private equity funding so very unique so we were doing we were definitely doing things that we now describe as lean and agile before they became contemporary terms and you know we had to do all of that on our own um in 2010 um i just realized or came to a realization that i'd spent at that point in time over 20 years in telecom uh telecom had been very very good to me but i wanted to do something else so um, I met um, a someone named Sandra Zingal, who is uh, an entrepreneur in the GTA area, who had a collection of media properties and signed on as its CTO. Um, one of the flagship properties was called audiobook.com. Uh, that was acquired by RB Media. So it was kind of mission accomplished in terms of the end objective of using that. Uh, From there, I went to Ripple as its CTO. It was a short and exciting tenure. Ripple was acquired by Salesforce.com within a year. Uh, From there, I did a transformation into, or change into uh, Mercatus, which was um, eventually an e-commerce SaaS play. Um, Although when I went there, they had a lot of IP Um, focused around a hardware device which is bolted onto a grocery cart. So my mission was basically to transform that IP into an enterprise-grade SaaS product, uh, which I did. That took five and a half years. Uh, At that point in time, uh, towards the end of that, I and my partner were dabbling with a thesis around organizational culture. So we basically left our day jobs because we had early stage success with an alpha based product around our company called Forte. Um, That, uh, With that, we were accepted with into um, an accelerator called Creative Destruction Lab. Um, We basically, graduated with, um, with that, with a child, which was an interesting adventure, <laughs> uh, doing two startups at the same time effectively. So at that point in time, we did separate trip and state. My partner continued on Forte on the thesis of diversity, equality, inclusion, and belonging on the Forte product, which continues to, to this day as an ongoing concern and growing venture. And I continued having a day job, quite frankly. So I became a CTO at Quandl. Uh, which was a fintech play focusing on uh, obtaining, structuring, sanitizing, and delivering uh, both open source and proprietary data sets to large financial institutions, including hedge funds. Uh, That was acquired by uh, uh, NASDAQ, so there's a bit of a thesis (laughs) at this point in time. Uh, Took some time off after my role was transferred to New York um, and was approached by ArlDatex, which is a health tech concern based in Chicago, backed by European private equity. Uh, That was um, what I would characterize as a plate spinner. It was a great growth adventure. Uh, Top line grew by approximately four to five times. The employee base that I was responsible responsible for grew by about three times. We acquired 10 companies, so had Uh, both for inorganic and organic growth over that period. And again, uh, it allowed me to, I guess, demonstrate or leverage a lot of the skills I learned in the previous two decades in a very different environment, PE, uh, inorganic growth. Oriented company, which did have a significant organic growth component, organic growth was in order of north of ten percent depending on the feature and product base and here we are. I left Rodatics when my role was transferred to Europe, and I've been just been obviously been catching up on topics that fascinate me.
1: awesome thank you for that um did you tell me if you um what do you remember about your time from like going from non-people management to actually having kind of like engineers under you? Were there any bits um, that you now remember that's now something that you teach your managers as they travel that journey?
2: Yeah, there's, uh, there are a few things. Um, I guess, interesting enough, it's probably resonates with one of the first near deaf experiences I've had as an engineering leader. For example, if I jump ahead where I was actually hiring, for example, engineering or software developers um, at Redney, um, like many uh, who are freshly minted engineering leaders, I thought all I had to do was hire the very best people, the smartest people, put them in the same room, and magic would happen. And magic did happen, except it was a dark magic. People just didn't get along. So I quickly realized that yes, skills, acumen, the ability to learn and evolve, are very important, but there's this ephemeral other side, which was equally as important, particularly if you're dealing with, uh, for lack of a better term, organizational culture or team alignment. And that other thing is, frankly, a consistent value system. So I learned to to quickly determine what the values I wanted to see expressed within the organization. And I made sure that Those people were part of the selection process, the people that I believe demonstrating that value. It did take time, you know, it it definitely added additional time and energy to the talent acquisition process. but was invaluable with regards to team alignment and overall productivity, which I think helped uh, really enabled us to grow uh, ready in, uh, you know, very tight financial constraints.
1: Cool. Could you give an example of like um one or two values that you've seen consistently that you're always looking for?
2: Um I, I guess well what, what I find so interesting enough, and this is what's fun into Forte, um, you know, this is our thesis that uh what we saw, uh and people I think do try in mistake. Personality with values and here's the thing: I like like yourself. I've probably taken every personality uh, or psychometric test I could lay my hands on because I did not want to create forte. Honestly, I want I wanted to see if there's already off the shelf tool I could use it. So I use Myers Briggs, variants of desk, various of five factors, uh, there even Strengths Finder. And here's the thing: if I point towards myself. If I use myself an example, my Myers-Briggs persona is INTJ. And when you think about that, uh, yes, it provides signal on, I guess, my personality traits. But does it mean anything with regards to team alignment and organizational culture? And the answer is no. It does provide me valuable information for coaching and self-reflection for me to know my strengths and weaknesses. But our thesis was, and interestingly enough, um, Google did a a two-and-a-half-year study on this very subject, what forms successful, effective teams, and that what they found was um, effectively what we typically look for in the interview process, skills, acumen, tenure, personality, have nothing to do with team success. What they found was what formed team success was this topic of our construct of what they coined as psychological safety. And our thesis was, my partner and I was, was, if it's not personality, what is it? And our philosophy was, well, it's an underlying value system. And those values are demonstrated by beliefs, or sorry, uh, values and beliefs, and those values and beliefs are demonstrated by behaviors. So we, dem- we basically developed a... um both a structured questionnaire and a proprietary machine learning algorithm that would train itself on uh, basically a a employee pool and that determined what we called the cultural fingerprint. But here's the thing. I was doing that manually. It just took a person week, (laughs) you know, and uh, in the early days of 40s, all that, the machine learning algorithm, the intent was to compress one week of interviews into five minutes which was kind of cool. But to get to your question, I I guess one, I guess the value or behavior um, that I personally look for is transparency, candor, and authenticity, Uh, quite frankly, um, I like to think that I walk the talk, uh, so to speak. Um, And if anything, here's the thing, Um, particularly people that I support, I want them to feel a sense of security and safety uh, that one, whatever I say I will do, I will in fact do. And I want them to, but I also want to see that behavior manifested in them. If I don't demonstrate that behavior, how would I expect that? Them, how would I expect them to demonstrate that behavior back to me? And there is a self serving, um, I guess, impetus behind that quite frankly i need signal you know if i don't get signal as to what are the positive and negative signals emanating are coming into me from the organization how can i possibly act on it um if i don't get you know to me the people i support are the best early warning system i have and if i can't get a signal from my own organization Like, how can I possibly determine a path of resolution, address the symptoms, identify root causes, and work towards increasing both employee engagement, stakeholder engagement, and meeting the the uh, requirements of the company?
1: Awesome. So, um, what I'm hearing is lead by example as a manager, and then you'll start to see some of those behaviors. But what you've also said is that the deeper research that you and your partner did helped you understand that actually a lot of this is about values rather than necessarily just personality.
2: Right. I I described, here's the thing. I, I guess the one interesting thing that I, because we tried that, you know, we had, so back in the day when I was an engineering leader, I would, I would say, okay, let's try this person. Let's try this thing. Let's just see what happens. And honestly, I did not see a correlation between anything to do with personality with team alignment, team product of the individual performance, interestingly enough. And honestly, it was just as valuable as a horoscope. So if I went out to my HR manager and said, I need 50 INTJs tomorrow, it would be just as ludicrous as saying, I need 50 Scorpios tomorrow. Yeah, No difference.
1: Awesome. Thank you. So you've had a very successful career. Um, can you talk about what success looks like for you? And what has helped you be successful?
2: Okay. Um, I guess, you know, I, I guess from the um, quantitative aspect, obviously the ability to grow the company in terms of obviously top-line metrics and bottom-line metrics like EBITDA, and, you know, all that. But to me, that's kind of, in a weird way, I consider the success of the company as a symptom of something else. Uh, so yes, and I can point to literally every company that has been acquired, uh, where I've touched it as a C-level executive, which is nice to hear. But I, I think the me as a person, what I enjoy the most, what I reflect on the most, is the people I've hired, grown, coached uh, to be leaders and executives in their own right. Which is kind of cool to see I, you know, I can point to uh for example, as one you know i when I entered fusenet, there was a team lead uh that you know literally started his own company after I left and he had left uh that company was actually acquired by another company in Montreal, and he's become an executive coach and mentor in his own right um that frankly make you know that if if anything causes an endorphin left if I reflect back on what I consider uh, successful, it's the number of people uh, that have hired. And, you know, I say, oh, you know, he, they're you know, good for him or her. Uh, you know, they and a lot of them do stay in contact. And honestly, a lot of them have become friends, which is kind of cool as well. To form those relationships that last, then a lot of them have followed me or continue to ask for my coaching and mentorship, which is kind of cool to see.
1: Awesome what else so you talked a bit obviously delivery as you consider um you talked about the symptoms what else would you apart from leadership development and growing others would you say was key to your success
2: um i think the ability to adapt and learn um you know when, when i reflect back across the companies i've been involved with um Uh, And this, this really maybe speaks to my philosophy as a leader. I, I'm not a big fan of playbooks per se, you know, which is basically I did this, these, you know, these specific sequence of steps and I'm just going to apply them here because I was successful in this context. And I, I unfortunately, I, I do see a lot of that, particularly with, unfortunately, management consulting agencies where they say, here's a playbook. If you do this, you will be successful. And what I found was every company, has been a snowflake uh, in terms of context, in terms of people, in terms of technology, in terms of organis- organizational structure, in, ter- in terms of domain. main. And uh, step one, uh, I think, you know, part of my philosophy is just learn. You know, don't try and do anything, just learn. Uh, the state and context of the company. That means, you know, learning about the people, learning as to why they got to this point, which is important, you know, what were the decisions made in the past? And obviously step two is to determine a hypothesis as how to improve things. And step three is implement and do that kind of rinse and repeat cycle with regards to um, yes, making decision, communicating, obtaining alignment of that decision, executing and seeing the results. Um, so I think that literally that kind of uh, humility to when you're going into an or, uh, organization or environment to you know not admit that I don't know everything. I'm here to step one learn, and yes, I will. Obviously, have a growing repository of experiences and knowledge to back me up, but uh, to have the humility to understand that. You know, I don't know everything. Please tell me how we got to this point so I could help the company grow from this point onwards.
1: Awesome. Thank you. So let's dig into, is there a um, something you're trying to figure out at the moment? Is there a problem that you are kind of particularly interested in or an area of research that you're digging into at this moment?
2: Well, um, I guess when I was at Arlodatics, I was a kind of supporting hundreds of people across 10 time zones and literally we did 10 acquisitions in under three years. So that was like, that's kind of the plate spinning aspect. So ironically, I did not have a real chance uh, to really keep abreast of compelling development (laughs) technology. The one thing that I found super compelling Literally, t minus uh, a year ago was all, uh, and this is where we started hearing the buzz uh, around generative, uh, a generative artificial intelligence, uh, large language models. And so, basically, once I left in February, I've been honestly just catching up um, on the different models, how they can be used, um, and it, interesting enough, there's a new model every day. It seems so. It seems like it's. Uh, Been a perpetual cycle of me learning something new about generative AI and LLMs and the potential applications of generative AI.
1: Cool. Um, you've been an executive a couple times. Can you um share for the listeners what's that like? How is it different from being a director or a manager?
2: Um, in there's I guess two aspects. One is a greater emphasis. On a correlation to understanding the strategic intent of the company, um, and which emanates from the board and, and the, typically the CEO, as well as uh, stakeholders like the uh, senior leadership team. Uh, but, you know, a strategy, if I don't understand a strategy, I can't execute well. And again, every company has been different if i focused on the last two, quando was focused on organic growth and a lot of my energy was focused on how do i optimize and improve the productivity to achieve uh, the objectives of the company in that context and yes we did things like um uh, automating a lot of manual customer success items to improve the efficiency of the company we Focus on uh, updating the back end infrastructure, decoupling the, the front end from the back end. So a lot of things that were undertaken in that context. In the case of you know the instruction, the strategic comparative was both growth, but also high EBITDA margins in excess of 40%. So that puts a very different spin on my operating parameters. So in the case of RODX, a lot of that had to do with, you know, selecting and executing in the context of of obtaining a low-cost center, which happened to be, in this case, North Macedonia. So, again, different different circumstances, different strategic imperatives uh, that you really need to understand in order to successfully execute as an executive. The error item... Um, Other than strategy and understanding the strategy, strategic end goals, is stakeholder management. That includes the board, were members of the leadership team, marketing, uh, sales, obviously, um, and uh, obviously the other large stakeholder group is the people I support. And balancing all those um, really understanding, um, actually, it's not understanding what their requirements are, what their needs are, but also providing a consistent a uh, form of communication to the board, why we did this, what are we operating on, and also the uh senior leadership team, because if they don't know what I'm trying to achieve or, or if there's no alignment um on what I'm trying to achieve, there's going to be a point of friction. So it's a lot of it is uh communicating and alignment across that level of leadership. Oh, cool. Nice. Thanks.
1: Um, is there um, any particular kind of relationships with one particular kind of role like CFO or chief product officer or chief sales officer? Is there a particular role that you've had that took a little bit longer to figure out? Or are there things you can share with us that helped you set up a good relationship with them?
2: Well, um one, I, I, every company has been been unique. So in some cases, I've actually been in charge of product. Uh, for example, in the case of Rennie, now Optima, so I had both hats. Um, I think that helped me understand the product role. Uh, for example, in ADX, DataX, you know, I was going into an entirely new domain, in this case, Self-Tech. So I, at that point, partnered with my CPO counterpart which I'm new to be based in the UK, to really understand what their requirements are, their objectives are. So I think part of that is a function of the operating context and company. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the, in, a, in a way, the same philosophy that I apply to the people I support, I apply to stakeholders, which is transparency, candor, authenticity, because they need to trust me. And I need to trust them. So I, I'm, I'm very much on the page of, if there's a point of friction, I prefer to identify and communicate what that is. So we can ideally come to some sort of resolution, compromise, what have you, to further achieve the goals of the, the organization.
1: Cool. So in the conversation you mentioned earlier about working with the board, what does that mean? What does it look like from your perspective as either chief product officer or chief technology officer? Um,
2: yeah. Well, from my perspective, um, most boards aren't particularly tuned to the technology. They What they want to understand is, are things working? <laughs> And are they working within the operating parameters? So is uptime where it needs to be relative to industry standard? Are your operating efficiencies operating within what they understand uh, within their cohort group? For example, in the case of large private equity firms, they probably have access to tens or dozens or even a hundred uh, corporations within their portfolio. So they get to see snippets and they will say, Hey, my understanding is, you know, you're operating, you know, you know they'll probably say you're dollar. For example, they might focus on, um, top line revenue versus engineer for whatever reason. And you know, my job is to rationalize. Why it needs to be at this level? Why I need more development resources? But they're very obviously strict. They're very strategic. They want high level operating metrics, and my job is to communicate why you know certain things need to happen and why. Uh, as in the case of our we needed to prove EBITDA margins, and one means of doing that was to uh, initialize or double down on a relatively low cost center region in, in Eastern Europe.
1: Okay, cool. So I like the fact that you explained about the cohort that you're often, um, depending who the board member is, has a cohort of companies that they will understand the costs and revenues based from them and that they will sometimes use that as a base of questions for you um, to figure out, are you within their operating parameters?
2: Correct. And again, every board has been somewhat unique because they've had different strategic objectives in the case of, uh, for example, Quandl obviously, our EBITDA margins were probably closer to zero, as opposed to you know, private equity back that you know have you know very high expectations on profitable growth. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, what are you seeing in the wider tech market today?
2: Well, uh, the last year has been interesting with regards to um, retraction. Um, I-, I guess you know having been an operating manager, leader, and executive across three and a half decades. The closest analogy uh, I've encountered to what we are now experiencing, uh, kind of it kind of reminds me of the dot-com era from 99 to roughly 2001, where there was implosion and in investment uh, in the dot-com sector, or was characterized as a dot-com center. Um, in an odd way, uh, I see some of the symptoms, which preceded the current decline in tech, which was a focus on vanity metrics. Like I remember literally the term eyeballs (laughs) was used as a key key investment metric, which obviously didn't make a lot of sense. And I I saw hints of that again, leading up to 2021, 2022, and 2023. Um, I, I think one thing which was unique in uh, I predict the last half decade was cheap cost of capital, which is effectively zero. So I think people were making a lot of loose bets um, and valuations were were not correlated with, uh, I guess, sound operational and financial metrics. And now we're kind of seeing that retraction. An unfortunate outcome, but having said that, you know, all things come in cycles. I think, you know, I, I guess the, looking positive, positively, the increased cost of capital is focusing time, energy, and capital on organizations that have sound business models, sound strategic objectives, and finally, you know, sound uh, leadership in uh, organizations. Frankly,
1: oh, um. What's helped you grow and helped you scale because you've had a, a, quite a journey? So what has helped you in those moments kind of um, grow to your next level?
2: Well, interesting enough, um, I, I guess one of the lessons learned a bit, frankly, late in my career um, was the realization that I did not need to be the smartest person in the room. Uh, and the power of networking, and the power of community, and that has really started my, I guess, um, extracurricular activities, uh, starting with the Toronto CTO meetup, which began towards uh, my tenure at Redney. Uh, so it really just began as a dinner group around, you know, roughly a rough cadence of roughly once every two months. That became a fairly we're a regular recurring meetup, uh, which had a community membership of hundreds of people within the Greater Toronto area. Uh, obviously, uh, over COVID, those activities were suspended. But uh, I reinstated the uh, meetup in a post-COVID environment, and that's meeting in a uh, roughly bi-monthly cadence. Last one being uh, roughly well two months ago, um, and I, I, I again, I enjoy that aspect of it. Because I learned from it. And, you know, I want to enjoy uh, the prospect of seeing people network, seeing p- those networks form because it's what those, I think that networking aspect, the fact that I could bounce an idea off of someone, get a cogent response back, help me grow as a leader because uh, they've experienced things, they've had access to uh, items I've not seen or heard. And um, uh, so it's that power of community. Uh, That has, I think, helped me. And it's partially what um, encourages me to continue that. And about eight years ago, I started TrueNorth CTO, which is the Canadian, pan-Canadian analog that's grown to over 2,000 people across Canada. And the one thing... Uh, I think I enjoy uh, literally using the most arcane question being posted in a virtual community and people hopping on within minutes and saying, well, this is what I've experienced. So it's a combination, uh, what I locally call a combination of professional and chill, where people can leave their hubris at the door and just help each other in a collaborative and social manner. Awesome.
1: So... Lastly, but not leastly, what do you do for fun, Bowden?
2: Well, um, interesting enough, um, the communities are my hobby. Like you know, like people say, golf, race cars. I actually enjoy the power of community, and you know, frankly, you know, uh, you know, I I do invest time and energy into both the Toronto CTO meetup and Toronto CTO. Um, I have deliberately and uh, this is fairly unique, both communities are unsponsored, volunteer-led, um, and not-for-profit, and I did that deliberately because I experimented with a lot of things in early days, I, and what I found was uh, the prospect of sponsorship, it started to distort um, the communication channels that are being formed, uh, and it started to create a point of friction, so I made a very early experiment, decided to canon and keep it as a Purely unsponsored, in community, organic-driven event, and uh, like I said, I I honestly get an endorphin lift when I see people communicate with each other, help each other, uh, both directly and and semi-publicly within the confines of the community. Other than that, um, I do know have a five and a half-year-old uh, by virtue. Of the other startup, where it was formed in a Creative Destruction Lab, <laughs> so uh, re-experiencing um, a parenthood all over again uh, with regards to a young daughter. So, uh, spending time with her, um, seeing her grow um, is is and you know it, extremely uh, well. Uh, whatever it, it's been encouraging to see uh, her grow as a young young human being again.
1: Odin, thank you very much for your transparency and your time today. Um, It's been a fairly insightful talk. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: all startup technologists. Have you ever dreamed of hosting your own podcast, but don't know where to start? Well, here's your chance to shine. We're thrilled to introduce Beyond the Program, our exclusive miniseries, and we want you to be a part of it. As tech leaders and mentors, you'll get the exclusive opportunity to become a guest host right here on the Pair Program podcast. Share your expertise, insights, and stories with our audience of startup-focused technologists. Excited? We knew you would be. To be considered, head over to myhatchpad.com backslash contribute. Fill out a brief form and submit it our way. Let's co-create something amazing together. Don't miss this chance to elevate your voice and expand your personal brand. Visit myhatchpad.com backslash contribute.